Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 for our Old Testament reading. I think this is an important chapter. Um, it'll sound very familiar to you this morning as this is the chapter that precedes the giving of the law at Exodus 20, which we had just had read a few moments ago. This is also a passage that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 in our sermon text this morning will reference. So we need to pay attention to what's taking place on this particular mountain. One of the things to keep in mind is that as you read the Old Testament, mountains are important places of worship. Book of Ezekiel, the prophet himself refers to Eden itself as existing on a mountain, the place where Adam and Eve served uh, and worshiped the living God. And then here we see Israel being brought to the base of Mount Sinai to worship the Lord God uh, as they are given the law. It's Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, they may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of these people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break out to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down. 
Come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And now if you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 12 for our New Testament reading. Uh, Here, again, we see the contrast between what takes place at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and what we do here every Sunday as the new covenant people of God as we assemble, not to Sinai, but to a different mountain. We'll begin reading in verse 12 where we uh, looked at last week. If you recall last week, we looked at uh, the the call to holiness that the people of God are called to pursue as we're uh, using the language of Isaiah 35, called to walk the highway of holiness This week, we're given the reason why we're called to walk this highway and where it is that we are leading. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 24. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask that the Lord bless the reading and preaching of it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ. The Christ himself has given us his word. We ask that you'd bless its reading and you would bless the ministry of the word Uh, that I would be able to preach with clarity and conviction, and that your people would have ears and hearts to hear, uh, that we might be attuned to sing your praises. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When uh, uh, the summer of 2006, I went to Central Europe. I was in graduate school at the time, working on a degree in history, and went with uh, a group of college students to survey uh, old World War II and Cold War sites. And Uh, Of course, whenever you're in Europe, you always get to see these massive uh, Gothic cathedrals. And my professor, uh, who was a staunch Roman Catholic, knowing that I was the token Protestant uh, in uh, the clan, one day we were driving through uh, a town in East Germany, and there's this massive, uh, beautiful uh, uh, cathedral that's five, six, seven hundred years old. Um, And standing right next to it was this kind of dinky little uh, whitewashed uh, Lutheran church. And pointing to these two churches, my professor looked at me and says, Charles, what do you Protestants ever have on us? It's like, okay, well, shots have been fired. Um, I think implicit in his question was a certain uh, assumption, of course. The greatness of the church is found in its building. It's found in its aesthetics. 
its decor, perhaps its music. Uh, what he failed to recognize was that that big Gothic cathedral served as little more than a museum uh, by the time we were there, uh, as there weren't church services held at this cathedral anymore, only uh, places for violin concertos to, to be held. Um, but it does raise an important question, I think, for us. What makes worship, worship? What's the litmus test for true worship? What, what characterizes it? Is, it? is it the experience? You know, I, I ended up visiting a church uh, when I was in college with uh, uh, my family um, where uh, 15 minutes into the service, all the lights went down and there was a big projection screen that dropped uh, and, and then they had a, a, a commercial aired uh, inviting us to church, which I thought was really weird because we were already there. Um, why should I already come? You know, why, it's like stopping a movie in the midst of a movie, inviting you to come see the movie. It didn't make any sense, but it, it was all about showing how great and grand this particular church was with uh, the great sound system, the equipment, some uh, churches that you would even see, uh, even pyrotechnics. What is it that characterizes true worship? Is it, is it the experience? Is it the, the, the sights and the sounds? Or is it something more substantive? Is it something different? I think it raises an even uh, more fundamental question, one that our passage before us itself raises. What's so great about worship under the new covenant? And why is it better even uh, than worship under the old covenant? Uh, our, our passage this morning, I think, brings us to the very heart of worship and gets at several themes that the book of Hebrews has been highlighting. I think we're really coming uh, close to the climax of uh, the letter. Th- this passage and the passage we'll look at next week really uh, it, it hits the, the apex of, of the driving theme of the book of Hebrews. But what it does, it talks about the nature of new covenant worship by contrasting two mountains. Israel's worship of God at the base of Sinai and the church's worship of the same God at the heights of Zion. You see this contrast between two mountains. Look at verses 18 to 21. You have not come to Sinai, verse 22, but you have come to Zion. So there's a contrast between two mountains, between two different historical epics. Um, the, the covenant of grace under uh, the Old Testament administration, that under Moses, and the covenant of grace now that Christ has come. But this morning, I'd like us to highlight three differences between worship under the Old Covenant and New Covenant. And I'd like us to tease out its significance as we think through the nature of New Covenant worship today. What is it that we're actually doing here? Why are you coming to hear uh, somebody speak uh, when most people could, would spend their Sundays just sleeping in? or uh, grabbing coffee and donuts um, and playing with their dog. We see here three contrasts uh, in play here. First, uh, we'll consider the character of worship under the new covenant. Secondly, we'll consider the company of worship under the new covenant. And finally, we'll consider the courts of worship under the new covenant. The character, the company, and the courts. And again, this is done uh, by contrasting uh, these two mountains of worship. So surely if aesthetics or theatrics or pyrotechnics are the key to stellar worship, uh, then you have no greater place to be than Mount Sinai. This is, this is the birthplace of Israel's liturgy. I know Exodus can be somewhat difficult to read at times. I, I don't know if you're, if you're like me and you, you try to do the Bible through a year plan every January. Everybody does good making it through Genesis and then you get through the first half of Exodus, and you're reminded of the Charlton Heston movie. You think this is all great. And then you get to like chapter 25 and following, and it feels like you're reading like a Home Depot list. 
You know, this is just like a construction list of stuff, and you don't know what to do. You try to make it through Leviticus, and finally you hit numbers, and you just give up, and you go back to reading Philippians. But, but what, I, what I think here is, is so important is that the book of Exodus is critical to understanding the nature of worship, particularly the nature of worship for the people of God under the Old Testament. Think of how glorious this was. I mean, this is something that is so glorious that the book of Exodus, the highlight of Exodus, is not Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but the instruction kit and manual for constructing the tabernacle. Think of how most people couldn't even enter the tabernacle. And so what they have is the the word of God. They have the second half of Exodus describing to them what the interior of the tabernacle looks like. It's something that, that, that charges the imagination but it's not like they were without anything. Think of how glistening uh, that the Ark of the Covenant would be when it'd be brought out as, as, uh, as, uh, as it glistens in the sunlight. Think of, of Aaron, the high priest, with his robes with the deep hues of blue and red, and he has uh, uh, the, uh, the vest on with uh, the various jewels. Think of how it radiates in the sunlight. Think of once the tabernacle, once it finds its resting place, uh, in Jerusalem, and the temple is built, and it's made entirely of gold. Think of what it would be look like to, to see that at sunset. Could there be a greater spectacle than that? Think of how glorious it was. Think of the, the fact that the Lord himself descends, and you have all the stuff whirling around you. How beautiful it must be. Surely if aesthetics were the key to worship, this could not be beat. Yet, of course, I think we, we consider how, how great it was uh, in an age when we are, we are drawn by uh, the glitz and the glamour, the fireworks display every 4th of July. But we, have to for, we often forget that what attends this worship service is something that's downright frightening. So we heard in Exodus chapter 19, what attends um, this worship service? There's a blazing fire, there's darkness, there's gloom, there's a whirlwind. Could you imagine uh, being outside for a worship service in the midst of a hurricane? That's exactly what happens as Israel stands at the base of Sinai. This is not simply something that we'd say is merely exciting or exhilarating. This is something that is downright terrifying. As the Holy God descends from heaven, cloaked in darkness, veiled in shadow and in flame. It's something that terrifies not only Israel. Israel's mediator is also frightened. Moses. I'm quaking with fear, Moses says here in Hebrews. and it, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is quoting not Exodus 19, but a passage in Deuteronomy where, where Moses re- is recounting to the next generation how much this moment in his life terrified him when the Lord himself descended. Israel's to learn that this, that the seriousness, the heinousness of her sin. What better way to do it than to have the holy God descend and stand before a sinful people where people, the people of God are given the law of God and now their sins are exposed to them in all its various ways and how they've offended the majesty of the one who has created the heavens and the earth by his bare word. It's frightening and yet it's merciful. Both of those must be held in tandem. Here God has delivered Israel from Egypt. How merciful is that? And yet when they're brought to the base of Sinai, they're told how special they are. No other nation has been brought forward. Egypt hadn't been called uh, through the Red Sea to stand at Sinai to worship uh, the God of heaven and earth. 
the, the Hittites hadn't, the Amorites hadn't, the Canaanites hadn't. Israel, of all the people on the face of the earth, have been given this, this, this special gift of being called to draw near. And yet, even as they're brought into the wilderness and they're brought to the base of the mountain where the Lord descends, what are they told? Don't come any closer. Build a hedge around the mountain. Don't draw, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you touch it, you will die. It speaks to Israel's own sinfulness. But not only speaks to Israel's sinfulness, it also speaks to Israel's own finitude. Because notice the command, it's not simply if a man touches the mountain, he shall surely die. Who else shall die? If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall surely be put to death. See, Israel's to, to learn something about the holiness of God. When we speak of the holiness of God, I think I mentioned this last week, we're not simply referring to God's righteous or moral purity, though that is also in play. We're speaking to God's utter transcendence over creation. Nobody can just draw near to God just because they want to, even if they were sinless. They, creation doesn't have the right to presume upon the courts of heaven simply because they are without sin. What, what are the angels in heaven doing when, when Isaiah sees the Lord and he sees the angels in Isaiah 6? The angels are covering their eyes. Their eyes are averted even as they, as they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. God's holiness speaks of God's distinctiveness, His distinction from creation. And now God's holiness is brought into view here. Israel cannot come forward because they're sinners, that's true. But they also cannot come forward, they cannot simply draw near because they're also creatures. They cannot presume upon the majesty of God. This is why even the animals are not allowed to draw near. It's so fascinating, isn't it, at Sinai? They're brought all this way, 400 years in slavery. They're brought through the Red Sea. They're brought through the wilderness. They're brought to the base of the mountain where the Lord descends, and yet they're told, no further. Do not come any closer. And as the Lord thunders from the heavens, the sound pierces their ears, and they ask for somebody else to speak God's words. They say, just make it stop. Somebody else, Moses, you speak God's words, but we can't hear God himself. So unbearable is God's holiness in the ears of the people of Israel. They cannot endure the holiness, even as they see it upon a mountain, that they can theoretically touch. And yet the author of Hebrews makes this gigantic contrast here, doesn't he? He says, you have not come to Sinai. We're not bringing you back to what you saw in Exodus 19. You have not come to Sinai. Rather, you have come to Zion. What's changed? Certainly, he is not downplaying the holiness of God. If you look at verse 29, this is still the same God who is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews reminds the, 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 the church under the new covenant that we still worship the same God. This is a God who is a consuming fire. So it's not as if God has become, you, you know, um, much more lax in his standards. As if you realize, oh, maybe I'm just being too tough. Maybe I just need to be a little bit more of a nice guy. That's not what has changed here. And yet what is brought into view is a distinctiveness, a change, a shift that has taken place now that Christ has come. I want you to remember the, the broader context of, of, of this letter. <coughs> Excuse me, this is a church that's been facing uh, tremendous persecution. 
If you read in chapter 10, here are people, uh, who their, their private properties have been seized. Some Christians have been thrown into prison. This is a church that has gone underground. Can you imagine what it would be like to be meeting and worshiping under the cover of darkness when the government's out to get you? And you're reading about the worship service at Sinai, where they're worshiping out and free and in the open. Or you're reading in 1 Kings chapter 8, where the whole nation is able to assemble in a big glistening temple. It's not really something that you can hide, a temple made of gold. Wouldn't you feel that temptation to go back? This letter probably a written sermon given to this church in hiding, is, is written prior to the year 70. This is something we have to keep in mind. There, it wouldn't make much sense for the author of Hebrews to spend so much time warning the people, uh, the, the church under the new covenant, to go back to the Old Testament temple sacrifices if the temple had already been destroyed. But that's one of the pervading themes we see in this letter. He keeps telling them, don't go back to the old covenant. That is the way of apostasy. But you can imagine, you could feel the temptation if they go, well, you know what we miss? We miss the smell of burning meat. It smells like a giant barbecue, right? We miss the massive temple. We miss the smell of the incense and, and the priesthood and their fabulous garments. We miss the aesthetic decor. We miss being able to worship out in the open. We're having to worship under cover of darkness. Wouldn't it be better simply to go back? And what the author of Hebrews is driving home is saying, you are not being brought back to Sinai. Rather, you have been brought to something far better. Israel dwelled in the shadows. Have you forgotten the terror and the gloom? Why would you ever want to return to that? You've become enamored with the bells and the whistles. But have you forgotten how insufficient the old covenant was? Again, another, another theme that we see throughout this letter be it the priesthood, be it the sacrifices, the whole point. The old covenant worship is insufficient. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The priests keep dying. What is there to do? The author of Hebrews makes this point in chapters 5 to 10. He says, look, if, if the, the, sacrifices, the animal sacrifices actually did good, then why do we have to keep doing them? If the priests were efficient for their task at hand, why do they keep dying? The major contrast he's been uh, bringing about in this letter is the fact, very simple, Christ is better. Christ has come, not according to the order of Aaron, not according to the order of Levi, he's come from the tribe of Judah. This is not an afterthought, this is not a mistake. The whole point, according to Psalm 110, is that there must be another priest that comes not from the tribe of Levi, one who will put that Levitical order out of business. One who has the power of an indestructible life. One after the order of Melchizedek. One who reigns forever. Christ himself. Christ who comes and by a single sacrifice renders, renders all other sacrifices null and void. Christ is the great, he, the great high priest. He is both priest and sacrifice. And now that he has ascended on high, he has, ascended, he has ascended not to Sinai, but he has ascended to the heavenly temple. The point here is you have not been brought to Sinai, you've been brought to a different mountain. You've been brought to the gates of heaven itself. You've been brought to a place that cannot be seen to the naked eye. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. 
right? He's not saying that you, uh, he's not contrasting Sinai with the mountain in Jerusalem. He is contrasting Sinai with the gates of heaven itself. He's using the language of Zion. And when you hear the language of Zion, particularly in the Old Testament, it is speaking of God's dwelling place in heaven. From out of Zion, the word of God thunders and roars. It is out of Zion that comes and brings deliverance and aid to his people. This is speaking of a heavenly place. Now that Christ has come, now under the new covenant, we have, been drawn, we have been brought near to worship to the gates of heaven itself. Abraham Kuyper in his book on worship, it's, uh, much of it is uh, much to commend for it, but he makes this important point. that When you, when you enter the, the, the church building, this building is not the sanctuary. I'm, I'm fine with people calling it the sanctuary small less, but you have to remember, this is not the sanctuary. The sanctuary is in heaven. It's the whole point of Hebrews. Christ has already ascended into the true temple, into the true holy of holies. So Kuiper would refer to this as the, the four courts. This is where we have gathered. See how instructive this is for the people of God under the new covenant. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping at Westminster Abbey or you're part of the underground church in China. We all assemble to the very same place. It is not contingent upon the four walls of this church. Because we have all come to the same place, the gates of heaven itself. Here we assemble as the people of God. And this serves, in one sense, as a portal to heaven. Here we find our oasis in the desert here on the Lord's day. It gives us a foretaste of the final day. That's Hebrews chapter 4. I encourage you to read that in your devotions this week. You can't see it, though. It doesn't look as fancy. It's less ostentatious. It's less flashy, but it is of a greater quality and efficacy. This is why we confessed Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 6, earlier in the service. The character of worship is different because we've been brought to a different mountain. And so maybe, just maybe, the litmus test for true worship is not marked by aesthetic decor. Am I saying that aesthetic decor is a bad thing? No. And one of my best friends, whenever he goes on uh, vacation, uh, he and his family always end up uh, 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 they check out websites in the town they're going to visit, and they always go to the church with the worst website um, because they figure if you have uh, 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 if you don't spend a lot of time on the website, that must mean you're actually spending time on other things like the preaching of the word uh, and pastoral care. That for him, that was, that's the litmus test. Again, I'm not saying that. I think our, our website is a pretty nice website, so I hope we're not being um, negligent in other duties. But the whole point is. What's the test? Are, 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 do you drive, you know, when you're going on vacation, you go, oh, look at how beautiful that church is. We have to go here. Maybe that's not the first thing to consider. Well, the character of worship is not the only difference. Here we find that the covenant of worship, the covenant, the, uh, the company of worship is different as well. Right? When you read your way through the Old Testament, uh, when, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, what bars their entrance into Eden? It's a cherubim with a flaming sword, Right? When, when Moses is con, uh, commanded to construct the ark, what is it that bars the entrance into the Holy of Holies as, it, as, they, as they sit above uh, the ark? It's two, two cherubim. In Ezekiel chapter 1, when the Lord comes in judgment against His people, what is it uh, that, that, uh, that goes out in advance in preparation and judgment? The angels. Angels in one sense can serve... This isn't the best analogy, but there's something like the bodyguard to heaven, like the Praetorian guard. Not that God needs help, not that God needs 
an army, but we are told in the Old Testament, the Lord is the captain of the Lord of hosts. He's the captain of the armies. And anytime we see the angels, so often, I shouldn't say anytime, but so often we see that the angels are given to bar man's entrance into the holy place from Genesis 3 onwards. And yet when we see here, again, this contrast that's being made, you have not come to Sinai, but now you have come to Zion. And you've come to note verse 22, to an innumerable angels in fright, to an, to an uh, innumerable angel of uh, praetorian elite, Is that what it says? No, you have come to an innumerable angels in festal gathering. Rather than being a scene of fright, it's now seen to be a scene of joy. What a change. What a a twist. Something far better than was seen under the old covenant. An assembly of joy where the angels do not block the entrance as bodyguards, but now they come to welcome us in one sense as brothers. Difference, of course, being this, that whereas the angels can only worship God as their creator, we're given the great privilege to worship God as our redeemer, because it was not the angels that the Son of God came to help, Hebrews 2, but the offspring of Abraham. And so here when we gather, it's not just the 25 plus people here in this room that are gathering to worship. We can't see it, but we've actually joined the host of angels. How great is that? Not just the host of angels, but also the saints in heaven. In one sense, I think we, can, we all recognize that every Sunday, that as the churches around the world gather for worship on the Lord's day, we are joining in the chorus of the, of the saints on earth. But here in Hebrews, it tells us we're not jo- simply joining the saints on earth. We've also joined the ranks of the saints in heaven. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn. That language of firstborn is very important. It's it's hearkening back to Exodus chapter 4, where Israel is referred to as the Lord's firstborn. Here we have joined in singing with the saints of old. We've joined in singing not just with um, uh, the angels in heaven. We've we've joined Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Moses himself. What What do you think they're doing now? Remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees? Abraham still is. Before Abraham was, I am. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the what? He is the God of the living. We have joined the saints in heaven. Something really special about this day. Something really special. Even though our eyes can't see it. The eyes of faith can. Here we've joined the choirs of the new Jerusalem. The company of the redeemed. The company of the angels as well. There's one final contrast here between worship under the Old Covenant and worship under the New, that of the courts. If you recall, the temple is not simply the place where God is worshipped, it is also the place where God renders judgment. Think of how frightening it would be to stand before the judgment bar of God. If you haven't thought about it, I'd encourage you to think about it because Scripture says we will all day have to give an account before the judgment seat. It's a frightening prospect. And yet this is the very thing that Israel does when they're summoned to draw near to the base of Sinai. As the Lord gives them the law. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Last week, last Friday, three hours before my installation service, I got pulled over by the cops. Um, Apparently I broke a law that I didn't even know was in existence. Um, Crossing crosswalk, something like that. So a guy pulled me over, and I said, 
I didn't know. I felt so embarrassed. Like, I didn't even know that's, that this particular traffic violation was a traffic violation. Um, but you know what? I was still in the wrong. And the cop, the cop told me what the law was. He let me off. Thank you. He says, hey, this is a welcome to Corvallis, let you off the hook type thing. <sighs> Thanks. Um, but but he, he showed me what it was. He says, this is the law. You have broken it. Think of what it would be to stand before. Think of it. It's frightening when you have a, you know, you're like, am I going to get arrested? You might have to give like a, a, a single phone call and say, sorry, I can't make my installation service. I've been arrested. Um, it wasn't that serious, but it was still serious. But think how frightening it would be for the people of God as they're brought to the base out in the middle of the wilderness. And then the, then the Lord shows up with 10 laws and exposes their sin to them in fire and in darkness, the sound and blast of a trumpet. To stand before God, the judge of all, would be a frightening prospect. And yet, if you look here at verses 22, note the tenor. This is a scene of great joy. Uh, uh, Verse uh, 24, or 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, um, to God, the judge of all. You, you notice how, how, how great, how, how festive, how joyous this list is. And then he gets to the, and you have come to God, the judge of all. That certainly seems to be out of place, doesn't it? How could you see that as a good thing? Here you have a gross sinner, though you are, you've come to stand before the holy and righteous God, the judge of all the earth. And yet, the passage here sees this as a great thing. Israel was summoned before God at Sinai and they trembled. Yet we're summoned before this very same God, this very same judge, to the very same courts. And yet now we are called to rejoice. What sinner in his right mind would rejoice at the thought of appearing before the holy God, the judge of all the earth, the one who does not wink at sin, the one who exacts judgment and vengeance upon all, the one who is unable and unwilling to receive bribes, the one who will not show partiality, who could stand to hear these words and not tremble. And yet here scripture beckons us to draw near with joy before the judge of all, Because now we have a judge who sits not as our accuser, but one who sits as our advocate. The one who comes to our defense against our enemies. The one who comes to our defense against his. How could this ever be? Because we have come to Zion. Because we have a better priest than Israel had at Sinai. Their mediator trembled. He was left quaking in his boots. Moses was. Now Christ, God himself, comes bearing our sins, resurrected, ascended on high, to where not a single one of our sins can be reckoned against us, so we can now come near and are beckoned to come near before the throne of grace with joy. We have Jesus who is the mediator, not of an old covenant, but one of a new and better covenant and acted on better promises, better promises than were given even to Israel at the base of Sinai. As we heard in Hebrews chapter 11, as it speaks of Abel, he who himself was righteous and was unjustly murdered and his blood cries out from the ground for vengeance, for justice. Yet we have one now who stands before the throne of God more righteous than Abel himself, and yet his blood pleads not for vengeance but for mercy. 
Mercy speaks by Jesus' blood here in seeing all you sons of God. Justice satisfied indeed Christ has full atonement made, the old hymn goes. Under the new covenant, we have a better high priest, one who has made the old covenant null and void. The old covenant is just the blueprint, the prototype. You can't drive a blueprint. You drive a pickup truck. You don't drive the advertisement in the magazine. What we find in the book of Hebrews is that the Old Testament priesthood is the advertisement. It is the prototype. It is the blueprint. Now the substance has finally come. Now we truly have the high priest. Now we truly have the great pickup truck, so to speak. The old covenant was just a shadow. Now we have the substance. And I think this is what leads us to the most important distinction between worship under the old covenant and worship under the new. Notice how the whole emphasis you'd see here in verses 18 to 21 is how Israel is finally told, uh, they're brought to the base of Sinai, but then they're held out at arm's length. They're told, do not come any closer. You come any closer and you die. Israel says, no problem keeping that commandment. We don't want to go. We don't even want to hear your words. But now, as we've been summoned not to Sinai, but to Zion, we've been commanded to come closer. Seven times in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.16, Hebrews 7.25, in Hebrews 10.1, Hebrews 10.22, Hebrews 11.6, Hebrews 12.18, and again in Hebrews 12.22, we are given the same exhortation seven times that we are to draw near with confidence. Israel under Sinai, don't come any closer. The church under the new covenant, come. Come not just with timidity, don't come presumptuously, but you come with boldness. You come with confidence. This is what makes the church's worship so much better. God is not impressed with our architecture. Heaven is paved with gold. The streets are paved with gold. Do you think he gives a rat's tail about church architecture? I think church architecture is pretty. I went to Westminster Abbey last year, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. What's so interesting, you walk in, what's the first thing you see? You see a, a statue Charles Darwin, and other people who have nothing to do with the faith. It's the most beautiful museum I've ever been to. But I don't know if it's much more. What a, what a joy it is here as the people of God to gather and to know that God isn't impressed with um, the decor. Isn't does it care if we do or do not have the, the giant rock band or the pyrotechnics or the theatrics or, uh, or the incense or the smoke and mirrors or the bells and whistles? Because that is not what's important. What is it that pleases God? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It is faith that pleases God. What confidence that gives the people of God. Whether you worship in a great, beautiful cathedral that still preaches the word faithfully, or whether you're part of the underground church in China that's having to meet under cover of darkness, or whether you're in the state of Oregon that can't have more than 25 people meet and we have to be masked up, we're still brought before the same throne. And the Lord still welcomes us as His. He still beckons us to draw near. There is neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. There is no state edict, there is no state mandate, There is no directive that hinders us from approaching the throne of grace because we have not assembled to a particular location on earth. We assemble as the people of God by faith and we come to the courts of heaven. 
And so we ask, where is Zion to be found? You have not come to Sinai, but you have come to, to the heavenly city. You have come to Zion. Where is it to be found? Zion is to be found wherever the church is gathered by faith. Wherever the benefits of the new covenant are declared, wherever Christ speaks so that he might govern his church and strengthen them by his spirit. Zion is wherever he feeds his flock, wherever he washes him, his people by the word. All right, this assembly, this is an assembly of pilgrims. The, the great image of the church under the new covenant as we await the return of Christ is this, that we are pilgrims in the wilderness. And as we gather on the, the Lord's day, this is our oasis in the desert. This is a rest stop along the way for something far greater, something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, something that we only have a foretaste of in Scripture, but something that will dazzle us beyond imagination when our Savior appears to reclaim us as His own. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray uh, that You would bless Your Word, that You would strengthen us uh, during these wilderness trials, that we might hear Your Word by faith and rejoice as we look forward to that day when the suffering will give way to glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.